0: Well, good morning. I hope you had a great weekend. It was just a beautiful, beautiful weekend out there. Not too uh, hot. And hope you enjoyed some time with friends and family. And hope you enjoyed worshiping together today. Just remembering what Jesus did for us and what it means for us. those of you watching out in the tent, thanks for joining us as well today. And those online. It's just going to be an exciting chapter of the Bible. When we look at the freedom we have and the confidence we have. Because of what Jesus did for us. We're going to learn about what we just sang about. But here's the analogy that he's going to use. Have you ever had a situation where you had to figure out how to dress properly for that environment? And like somebody said, hey, we're having a costume party. And you're like, right, like who's really wearing a costume? Am I going to be the only one? You ever been there? I was talking to a buddy I went water skiing with last week, and he's currently interviewing to be in the FBI. And so they're on the final stages of the interview, And he said there's two parts to the interview. Part one was kind of a workout, you know, run kind of thing. And the other part was a formal suit and tie, you know, be asked questions. So he called his handler a couple days in advance, didn't get back to him. Do I show up with the workout clothes or do I show up with the three-piece suit? Had a 50-50 shot. Handler never got back to him. He tried the workout clothes. He showed up, he's the only one wearing the workout clothes. Thank goodness they had a gym, so he was able to change last minute, and no one knew any better. But there's something about needing to dress properly for the environment that is just built into our culture. But Hebrews is going to tell us it's also built into our heart. The idea of a conscience is used often in the Bible, but it's mentioned the most times of any one place here in Hebrews. He says, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices offered cannot, like, cannot make him who performed those gifts and services perfect. You can't be perfect in regard to your conscience. You might be able to dress yourself up outside, look good on the outside, but you're not cleansing or dressing up the inside, he says. At the end of the chapter, he'll address the solution. He says, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, will be able to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So conscience, it's going to come up often here. Your conscience is your self-awareness of whether or not you're fit for the environment. Your conscience is that self-awareness of whether or not you're fit to the environment, to the standards, and to the requirements. So morally, there's a sense in which if I'm going to step into God's perfect space where God is, my conscience says, no, you're not. Mm -mm. You don't fit there. You're not dressed properly for that. And the tabernacle is going to formally do what your conscience already knows. The tabernacle is going to tell you what your conscience has already been telling you. You're not dressed properly for this environment. And so our writer is going to talk about two different tabernacles. One tabernacle requires you to dress up to go inside. That's Moses' tabernacle. It requires you to dress up, wash up, clean up to go inside. But that's only on the outside. But Jesus comes as another tabernacle or another house. And while this house requires you to dress up to go inside, this house actually dresses you up inside to meet what's required. And that's why Jesus is the supreme tabernacle. Because while the old one had requirements, and it would dress you up on the outside, but it never fixed the real problem. But Jesus is the house that actually dresses you up to meet all of God's requirements. So think about those two statements here before we dive in. Moses tabernacle, one house, requires you to get dressed up. Oh, the priest had to get dressed up, you had to get washed up, just to go inside to be near a sacred space. But then Jesus shows up and he dresses you up inside. He he cleanses your conscience to meet all that is required. And that's why he's the better tabernacle. We'll start with the first aspect, this first house. He spends a lot of time on this first house. Moses' tabernacle got a lot of requirements to get dressed up to go inside to God's presence. Here's how he says it. Even the first covenant had ordinances. And the word ordinances means rituals or routines or religious activity. So there's certain ordinances of divine service for the earthly sanctuary, the earthly sacred space. For tabernacle was prepared, the first part, We got a lampstand, we got a table, we got showbread, and that was called the sanctuary or sacred space. Now, behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle is called the holiest of all, the most holy place. Now, all of that was symbolic for the present time in which gifts and services are offered, but don't forget, they cannot make him who performed it, even if you do it all right, dress up properly, can't make you perfect. And that's the requirement. In regard to what's in the inside your conscience. Concerning only the foods and drinks that you have. Concerning the various washings you go through. And the fleshly ordinances you have. Until the time of the reformation. And the word reformation means the the new order of things. The the new restored aspect of things. God was going to bring about, Jesus brought about a restoration. A restored order of how to get your insides and your outsides fit ...for the perfect sanctuary or sacred space with God. Now this is true of all religions, not just the Hebrews. That you had to recognize there was a gap between you and God... ...and certain rituals were required to make yourself clean enough... ...to meet those requirements. In fact, archaeologists have found something very fascinating... ...as they studied the tabernacle. You'd come into the tabernacle, right? You would offer sacrifices at these different slaughter tables you give that sacrifice at the brazen altar to cover temporarily what you've done or didn't do. Then you go up to the brazen um, laver. And when you get there, you washed up, cleansed up. And if you were dressed properly like a priest, but only a priest, you can make your way in to the next veil. But everything was about requirements. And here's what archaeologists have found fascinating. When they look at the tabernacle, the second picture here, they notice that it looks very, very different from how Solomon builds the temple in the bottom corner. You'll notice the tabernacle has one entrance and it has one chamber composed of two different parts. But when you look at the temple built by Solomon, it's very, very different. There's kind of an opening section, then a second section. There's side chambers here and here. There's an outer sanctum and, and a holy of holies. They're similar, but they're very different. But what really struck archaeologists is when they began to do some study of Egyptian hieroglyphics. They noticed that Pharaoh, Ramesses II's war camp, during the exact same time that Moses laid out the parameters for the tabernacle, almost looks identical. As if God was patterning, p- patterning the tabernacle to look like Ramesses II's war camp. Why would God do that in, in, does that just mean that maybe God cheated and he just stole what the Egyptians were doing? Well, let me address it two ways. First, God is a master communicator. And whenever you communicate something, you start with what's known, right? And then you move to the unknown. So God took something they already knew about. We know what it's like to have God on earth. Pharaoh's a God on earth. To come into His space, you had to come through certain parameters to go into that space. Now, the temple is going to be A lot different in its protocols than Ramesses' war camp. However, there's similarities where he was able to say, you know you got to get washed up to come into God's presence. Let me tell you how you do get washed up to come into my presence. However, that still has a question mark, doesn't it? Like, something seems wrong there. Why, Why would what Moses brought down look like what the Egyptians were already doing? Here's my theory. One of my theories, here's a, uh, the hieroglyphics, by the way, put into uh, somebody tracing it. We had a graphic designer take what was seen on those hieroglyphics from Ramesses II and draw it out. But you notice that there are shields around the outside structure, about the same size as the tabernacle. There's an inner entrance. and In the original hieroglyphics, was a big battle between the Hittites and the um, Egyptians. But this inner chamber had a section here for the pharaoh, which had these winged creatures... And it had a snake, which was one of the gods that would protect the pharaoh. And there are these priests giving incense in the other altar. So you can see these are very, very similar. A lot of pieces missing, a lot of pieces are different, but very, very similar. Why would he do that? Well, here's my theory. My theory is that Satan has never had an original idea in his whole life. So remember what we learned last week? We learned last week... That there is a temple in heaven, the, the actual temple, the tabernacle. And when God gave the, the instructions to Moses, they were just a shadow or a blueprint of the real tabernacle in heaven. Right? Remember we learned that last week? If you remember this, that's what we learned last week. We also learned from the Bible that up in heaven are all God's spiritual beings. Well, many of those spiritual beings fall to earth, is what as are known as demons. And when God separated the languages at the Tower of Babel, It says in Deuteronomy, chapter 32, 8 and 9, and 16 and 17, that the same time he confused the languages, he gave each of those nations over to a spiritual fallen being. That's why when you hear in the New Testament, you know, the prince of the power of the air, or you hear from the book of Daniel about Michael trying to get to Daniel, and I couldn't because of the prince of Persia, spiritual being over this area. So what that means is all of these different religions... That seem to have similarities. You ever notice like Roman religions and Greek religions, Egyptian religions, there's differences, but there's a lot of similarities. It's because Deuteronomy tells us, and Paul says in Corinthians, that behind every idol is a demon. And the demon had to come up with some way to worship themselves. And they've never had an original idea in their life, so they just took what they saw in heaven and said, kind of like this, and they distorted it a bit. So sure enough, the Egyptians end up for many, many generations, with a tabernacle that's actually the demon's idea of what he saw in heaven. Now fast forward, we get to 1200 B.C., and Moses gets an exact copy of the original tabernacle, what we learned last week, and surprise, surprise, they look similar. And this was, again, the restoring of order, where he put back together that which was in heaven. And it became the perfect teaching mechanism to teach the people of Israel who've seen something like it for 400 years, now know what it looks like to come into God's presence. So, Hebrews, Greeks, Romans, and Egyptians, they all had ritual or ordinances in order to get into God's presence. So let me take you inside the tabernacle and show you a little bit of what those ordinances are, because he's going to cite them very specifically in the next verse. All right, so we're going on a little adventure with God, we're going to jump into the tabernacle and look at the different pieces together from the book of Exodus. Let's watch. Let me go back to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, where God gave instructions not only on how to build that box, but also how to build a court, an outer structure made only of walls about the size of four tennis courts. And inside of that was a smaller tent, a movable tent called the Holy Place, A place where people could find God's direction, God's forgiveness, and God's power. This first chamber was called the Holy Place. And it had different symbols and rituals that would equip people for the adventure of doing life with God. The first tool was called the menorah, a symbol of light, a symbol of seven parties God wanted His people to have throughout the year. The next was the incense altar. It had a lot of different symbols here, but one was that your prayers make it to heaven. And other things we'll talk about in future weeks. Then there was the table of of showbread, a reminder of God's provision and his promises from the past. Now the priest's job was to help connect people to God in this space. Now between the holy place and the most holy place was a giant curtain that separated the two. It went from floor to ceiling. It kept everyone including the priests, out of God's presence. Only the high priest, and only once a year, could go behind this curtain to God's presence, the God Box, and offer an annual sacrifice. It was here that uh, people could know, like know they've been forgiven. Imagine knowing you've been forgiven, knowing you have peace with God, knowing the God of the universe has granted you favor. That's what this place represented. It was a place where heaven and earth overlapped and you got to be invited into the adventure of living life as if heaven was overlapping with you. Now, no one was allowed to touch the God box, not even the high priest, or they would be killed, which sounds like, warning, warning, you know, angry Old Testament God. Well, maybe. Think of it more like a hot stove, like you can't touch the heat or a welding arc. You need protection to look at it kind of the idea here. God wanted to make sure his people, mere mortals, could come into his presence and the priest's job was to help with that. So once a year the high priest would go behind this curtain and he would offer a sacrifice in this space called the mercy seat between the two angels on the ark. See the blood would be placed here and it was a way in which the consequences, the just consequences for our wrongdoing. Something else would absorb that so that we could know we've been forgiven. It was also known as a reminder box. So, If you opened up this thing, inside of the ark was a set of the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down, a reminder of all the ways <laughs> and reasons we need forgiveness. There was also a section of manna. This was the daily bread God provided all those years wandering through the wilderness. You think of Jesus' prayer, give us this day our daily bread. What does it mean to depend on God every single day? There was also a flowering branch, a reminder that God helps with conflict. One day they couldn't decide who the real leader was and so everyone brought out a branch and uh, God made the branch of Aaron bud, a little flower appeared. I think it's the first time in the Bible God ever said, this bud's for you. (laughs) But I digress. It was a reminder that God helps us with conflict. He gives us what we need every day and he gives us commandments for living life. But mostly this box was a reminder that God forgives, God provides, and He's here to help. He's the final forgiver, and He wants us to go on an adventure with Him. So all these requirements, all this forgiveness, but it was only temporary. It established the requirements, but it couldn't fulfill the requirements permanently. And that's what the writer continues to say. He said, all those dressings, they got you dressed up for sacred space. The holiest of all place. There was a golden censer. Just saw it. The Ark of the Covenant. You just saw it. Overlaid on all sides with gold. You just saw it. In which there was a golden pot that had the manna. Just saw it. Aaron's rod that budded. These are the quality dad jokes I bring to the table, by the way. You don't get these everywhere, just so you know. Bud's for you, good stuff there. All right, and the, uh, the, t- the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim, the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, which I explained. However, despite all that ritual and all that ordinance and all that protocol, he says, you could burn the right stuff, wear the right stuff, wash the right stuff, eat the right stuff, and it never dressed you up enough. Of these things, we cannot speak in detail. You're like, wow, that sounds like a lot of detail. Now, when these things had thus been prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing those services. But into the second part, only the high priest went, but alone and only once a year. But he had to go with blood, not without blood, got to have blood, which he offered for himself. He needed forgiveness. And the people's sins need forgiveness, even those sins committed in ignorance. I didn't even know that was wrong. Now, the Holy Spirit's indicated this, he says, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. There was a better way coming. While the first tabernacle was standing, we didn't discover it. So, there's the tabernacle coming into sacred space, going past the curtain. Getting into the place that only the high priest could go behind the curtain where the ark was. All of those dressings didn't dress you up enough. And that's where he ends his main point. It was all symbolic for the present time. In which both all those gifts and all those sacrifices are performed. They cannot make him who performed the service perfect. In regard to the inside, the conscience No matter what you eat or drink, no matter what you wash, no matter what ordinances you provide, until the time of Reformation. Because they didn't deal with the inside. One house required you to get dressed up to go inside. But the minute you made that sacrifice, you'd go and do it again. So conscience. Remember Macbeth? Remember that scene from Macbeth? He's just killed the king. And he feels guilty about it. His conscience is haunting him. So all day long he walks back and forth trying to get the the dirt, the blood off his hands. He washes again and washes again and washes again. And though he's physically clean, his conscience keeps telling him what he did was wrong. He can't get cleansed on the inside. There's something in us that longs. We know that what we do deserves judgment. We know it. Oh, we make excuses for it, but inside our conscience tells us we're guilty. But we try and minimize that because we don't know, is there any way to fix this problem? And that's what Jesus is going to offer with the second temple, the separate tabernacle. And when you find that, it changes everything. We had an exploring service we did about four weeks ago. We had a big grand piano up here. And one of our musicians named Dave Lewis, you've heard him play a lot at this service as well, he shared his story of coming to find a God who could cleanse him on the inside. Now, I've known Dave for, for five years, and I talked to him a lot backstage, but I'd never heard his story about coming to know Jesus. He said five years ago, he didn't know he could talk to God. He was discouraged, he was depressed, he was working two different jobs, and just wasn't finding meaning or fulfillment. So Todd, our sound guy, called him up and asked if he'd play a song one day. He's like, I don't know if I'm qualified, I don't know if I'm up to the task. He's a phenomenal musician. So he shows up and he plays the song. At the end of that service, he said, as I was singing the song, I could feel tears coming out of my eyes. I could feel something around here and in here changing me. And the encouragement I felt from the band, from our team, from church members who just were so thankful for what I did. It's like God let a spark in me. And I started to learn about Jesus and learn about God and learning how to pray. Learning how to have access to him. He said, Chad, I'm a totally different person today. When I realized I could be forgiven from the inside, my real problem wasn't that I didn't have money, didn't have a job. My real problem was in the inside. Something was broken inside. And I asked him, I said, What song do you want to play? And he played uh, Rascal Flat's Changed. And he just sang this powerful song at the end of our service about how he had been transformed by knowing he could be fully forgiven by Jesus. And he said, I'm a better husband, I'm a better father, I'm a better employee. Because I know something's been cleansed on the inside. And he's living and walking in that freedom. And that's what God wants for all of us. But it's not going to come from the rituals of the first tabernacle. Which is why he says, one house requires you to get dressed up to go inside. But let me tell you about this second house. It dresses you up inside to meet what's required. He starts off by saying... But Jesus, (laughs) but Christ, when all that other stuff didn't work, but Christ was our permanent priest. He's the ultimate tabernacle, the ultimate sacred space. He is the very house of God. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater, there's a greater, and the more perfect tabernacle. And it was made not with hands. Oh no, it came from heaven itself. The word became flesh, John says, and tabernacled among us. He's the tabernacle. He's the permanent priest from Melchizedek. He wasn't a temporary priest that needed forgiveness for their own sins, had to come and go as they died off. This is a priest that never dies. He rose himself from the dead. He's been around from Alpha to Omega. He's the permanent priest with a permanent sacrifice that can wash what's broken on the inside. He goes on. Jesus gave the permanent blood in this eternal house. See, not with the blood of goats. They were good temporarily. They didn't get the job done. The blood of calves, they were good, just didn't get the job done. But with his own blood. That's why Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He represents God and man. And his blood is perfect. The goats weren't perfect. The lambs weren't perfect. They were wayward. We need someone perfect to put the blood on the mercy seat. And he was able to enter into the most holy place, Jesus was. Once for all. You don't need Jesus plus something else. Fully satisfies. And he obtained eternal redemption, which means to buy you out. He bought you out of it everything you owed in your conscience, everything you owed from your misdeeds and your rebellion and your traitorous thoughts, he bought it all back. And he was the permanent mediator. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling of the unclean, and if that's sanctified for the purifying of flesh, if it got the job done, how much more the blood of Christ? If goats were good... How much better is God if a calf was good? How much better is God? Who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God to cleanse your conscience. Oh, it can be cleansed. It can be washed. But look what it needs to be washed from. Cleansed from dead works. We got to talk about this. The second theme of the book of Hebrews we've looked at is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But for many of us, it's Jesus. He died for me. I get it. He died for me. I appreciate it. Plus, I've really beat myself up over what I've done. I've been beating myself up for five, ten years over what I did. And my beating myself up, plus what Jesus did, probably will get me favor with God. No. Those are dead works. You don't even realize it, but you think that Jesus somehow wasn't fully qualified. So it's Jesus' death plus me beating myself up somehow will gain favor. We need to turn away or repent from the dead works. See, Jesus... Plus nothing equals everything. But Jesus plus anything, you add anything to it, you think you're going to improve on Jesus because of your own merit, your own works, your own favor. You're going to somehow God loves you more today because you prayed harder and He loves you less today because you didn't do your Bible study. He loves you more today because you checked some boxes and and He doesn't love you so much because you missed some kosher things. Those are dead works. And it robs you from the freedom that you find in Christ. So becoming a Christian requires two things. It requires you to repent of your bad works. Man, I did some bad things. I agree with God. These I did not live up to my own standards, let alone God's standards. But then there's a harder part. Repenting of your good works. I'm basically a good person. I basically follow the, the Ten Commandments. Can you name ten of them? Well, no, but I'm sure I can. I, I'm sure I try, I can obey them. I, I follow the golden rule. I, I have never followed the golden rule for one day of my life. Doesn't mean because it's not good. Doesn't mean because I haven't tried. When you think that you can meet the law by your own requirements, you're either going to be crushed under the reality you find out you can't, or you're going to just make excuses and say, "Well, I'm not sure exactly what it means, but I'm sure I'm trying hard." You're going to think your works are not dead. You're going to think that they really do give you merit. Then you get real arrogant because you keep a certain aspect of the law that somebody else doesn't, and they're not as good as you. So you need to repent to become a Christian of your dead works. God, I don't live up to your standards. I do things wrong. And God, I repent of my good works because they are not going to save me. They're not going to cleanse me. They're not going to help me meet the requirements. And that is why when you see what this house does, it dresses you up inside. It washes you of dead works. It washes you of good works. And now you can serve the living God because you are fully cleansed in him. And everything good that comes out of you, you don't get arrogant about. You're just so grateful to what he is doing it in you. Which is why he builds to his main point here that Jesus was our permanent mediator. For this reason, he, Jesus, is the mediator The person who mediates between God and man. He's fully God and fully man. He's the perfect mediator. And he's a mediator of the new covenant. Remember last week we talked about that? It's not the you will, then I will. But if you won't, then I won't covenant. That was the Old Testament. It's the I will, even if you won't. I did, even though you couldn't covenant. And he did that by means of his death. He died for everything he did wrong. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. First covenant was good. Told you, you got a problem you got an external problem, an internal problem. But it couldn't fix it. That those who are called may receive. It's a gift. It's the gift of him dressing you up inside. The gift of a promise of eternal inheritance. And this is what he's offering to us. A house of God who came, allowed itself to be destroyed, then resurrected itself in three days, and now sits in heaven. It dresses you up inside, fully cleansed, fully washed to meet all that God requires. So here's the question. Are you living in the freedom of the house that washed you from the inside? Are you living weighed down by guilt and shame? Are you living in freedom and grace and confidence that God is with you? it this way how would you feel how would you forgive how would you live and how would you love how would you think and how would you give if you knew you were dressed up to fit into God's presence you couldn't dress yourself up how would you feel oh, I've got a good self-image because I had a good day or I shoot lots of goals or I, I score lots of points or, or I was able to, to, to make a big sale. Okay, that's good stuff. But that's dressing up your identity. What if the God who made the universe and the stars and holds your atoms together says you are his son or daughter? You're dressed up for his perfection. How would you feel about yourself if you knew that was true? How would you forgive others a million-dollar debt they had against you, if God has forgiven you, a trillion-dollar debt you had toward him? Would you be so overwhelmed that he, he dressed you up to fit into his presence when you owed him a trillion dollars, and now when somebody wrongs you or hurts you, it's a million dollars. It's painful what they did to you, but you can forgive a million-dollar debt if you've been forgiven a trillion-dollar debt. How would you love your enemies if, if your God forgave you when you were his enemy? How would you be generous with mercy and grace and your finances if you have treasures in heaven secured by a God who allows you to fit into that holy place with the treasures of the universe? How do we live? How do we love? How do we give if we've been dressed up to fit into God's presence? Remember what he said? But with his own blood, he entered the most holy, the most holy place. And had your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And now your bodies are washed with pure water. And you now have a true heart with full assurance that you can draw near to God. Something happens when you realize that somebody has died for you. Someone innocent has given their life for you. Ernest Gordon tells this story of being a British POW in a Japanese camp after World War II. He said the conditions were horrible, the food was horrible, they were beaten, they were tortured. After one particular long day, they had just finished shoveling all day, all day. They turned in their tools and they're standing before the Japanese commander. And he was in a particularly foul mood that day. He stopped and he said, one of you has stolen one of the shovels. Step forward if you're the one that did it. And this was a serious offense because it was someone trying to escape. No one stepped forward. The commander pulled out his gun, put it on his shoulder. Then all of you will die. He waited. He was just about to pull the trigger. One of the POWs stepped forward and said, I stole the shovel. This commander had already worked himself up into a laver of anger and fury. He bashed this prisoner over the head, fell to the ground, smashed, kicked, punched, shot. Ultimately crushed his skull before all his friends. Stormed off. His friends quietly, without saying anything, picked up their friend up his body. They walked their way in silence back to the camp. When they arrived, they saw one of the Japanese soldiers turned to the commander and said, sir, sir, we miscounted. All the tools are accounted for. Ernest says that that day the conditions in the camp didn't change. The rations didn't change. The food didn't change. But every man who was there, outlook totally changed. Because we knew that day that somebody innocent stepped forward to take the penalty so the rest of us wouldn't die. And we have lived the rest of our life transformed because someone took the penalty that we were going to receive. You know, figuring out how to do this thing, how to incorporate, how to live out this life of being cleansed from your conscience is not easy. We need a band of brothers to help us. What does it look like to mother, to father, to lead as a leader out of a place of God's grace, knowing you're secure in him, knowing you've been cleansed by him? So what we do as a church, is we try and create pockets and avenues and gatherings where you can gather with people to try and figure this stuff out. We had a women's group a few weeks ago just had so many of you talk about how helpful it was when Beth just shared how to incorporate this thing into your life as a mom, as a leader, as a, as a, as a, as a wife. Many of you follow along with this particular series in Hebrews. You're in Bible studies and you get on the app every week when we're done and, and you pull up the pathway we do, which is a little two-minute video summarizing this message that you can use in your small group or your personal study. May that be a tool you use to figure out how do I live this thing out. Or maybe you just need some other people to bounce ideas off of. In fact, We have a series coming up in a few weeks. Ken King is going to be back with us. And Ken is going to do a series called the four critical decisions. And it's in this process that Ken has realized that over the years, when guys get together here at our church, powerful things happen when they begin to say, how do we live? How do we give? How do we think about this message in everyday life? In fact, I said, well, Ken, this is going to be a little different than what we've done in the last couple of years. We asked him kind of explain what this new series is about and how we as a church can learn this thing, how, how men can come together and kind of as a band of brothers encourage one another. And Ben wanted, uh, Ken wanted to tell you a little bit about what the series is about, so I thought better to have him explain it than me. Let's watch.
1: Hi, Horizon. It's Ken Kington, and I'm so looking forward to being back there. You know, over 30 years of performing stand-up comedy and speaking at at thousands of corporate events and motivational, inspirational events. I met some of the most amazing leaders from all walks of life, heads of departments in Ivy League schools. Uh, I met the CEOs, COOs, and CFOs of 80 of the Fortune 100 companies in the world at one event. And that was just one event of thousands of corporate events I've done. I've sat down and had dinner with Super Bowl winning coaches, Heisman Trophy winners, and the list goes on and on. But what I love to do in those situations is listen. How did you get there? What was the key? What was the secret? And I discovered it wasn't abilities and it wasn't even opportunities. It was actually decisions that these amazing leaders make. And I found over the years that they started to fall in one of four critical categories that was the key to unlock success. So whatever your frustration or maybe your desire is, maybe it's relational or financial or vocational, I promise one of these four critical decisions will be the key to unlock those. We're gonna look at one each week, starting on September 26th, then Monday mornings uh, on the 27th and moving forward for four weeks. You can make them all, or if you just make one, that's fine. But I promise you're gonna walk away with some amazing insights. It's going to be at Horizon. You can go to their website right now and get a few more details, but register as soon as possible because the series, Four Critical Decisions, starts September 26th and 27th. It's Sunday nights at 8 o'clock, Monday mornings at 6.09. They're interchangeable. Come to whatever you can. Be there whenever you can, but don't miss it.
0: So I encourage you just to sign up for that. Or if you've never been in a group, come talk to Drew. Come talk to me. Today as we finish the service today, there's usually elders or leaders. Third door on your left is the hearth room. If you're watching online or watching out in the tent, we just encourage you to come chat with us. Let's get in a group if that's something that helps you. And let's find a way in which all of us can live out the power of this, of this cleansing that occurs from Jesus. The power of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the worship today. Thank you for the reminder today. Now, God, equip us, infuse us, and teach us how to live out this message in moments that we're crappy, in moments that were critical, in moments that we're having a good day or bad day. Help us to find our power source in you, not ourselves. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look forward to seeing you at the hearth room, or we'll see you all next week.